1 John chapter 1, verse 1. This is what we get to read and study together this morning. And I'm excited. I'm excited to continue in this book with you guys. This is a such an important book for how we understand our relationship with God, for how we walk in this world. First John hits so many things. And remember last week, I mentioned how we need to kind of view First John as this musical piece, right? It wasn't just this linear train of thought like the Apostle Paul uses very frequently in his writings. Uh, John uses a, m- a much more almost circular like musical thing. So he'll, he'll hit a point. It's almost like the refrain, the chorus of a song. And then he'll go and he'll talk about something else. And he'll come back around and he'll hit the point again. And so you'll notice that as we do it, uh, as we read through and study it together. Last week as well, we talked really at length about the connection between belief and obedience, right? Belief that will, in, in, in my opinion, and I think biblical precedent says that belief will lead to obedience. In fact, if you want to look at how James puts it in his book, he says that obedience validates or it authenticates or it proves our faith or belief. James, in fact, says you can claim to have faith, but if you don't have works, your faith is dead. It's useless. It's meaningless. So some questions that we talked about last week that I encourage us to continue thinking through as we go through this today is, is this. If, if I say that I believe... Do my actions and do my thoughts back that up? Do they prove that I actually believe and say what I believe? Do they line up? If I claim to be a follower of Christ, do I obey the word of God? Or does my life just continue on with no perceivable change? Um, So the Apostle John, in his writings, we, we believe that he wrote five books, the gospel, Uh, These three books, the epistles, and then the book of Revelation. And in those books, he tells us his purpose in writing. And don't forget, in 1 John, he gave us four purposes in writing. This is just to review, to help us kind of get a scope of the book a little bit better. In one of the verses we'll look at today, in verse 4, he says he's writing to promote full joy. To promote joy. In chapter 2, verse 1, he's writing to prevent sin. In chapter 2, verse 26, he's writing to protect the church from false teachers. And then also in chapter 5, verse 13, John is writing to provide assurance of salvation. And all of this, all of these things that he's writing to do are in the context of the body, in the context of the church, the family of God. And what we're going to read this morning is really a big, long sentence. I mentioned this last week because John is just excited to share these things. He is really amped up in order to explain to the reader, which would be you and I this morning, explain to us who Jesus is and why it matters. Okay? So he's, he starts with explaining how Christ completes joy. And that's what we're going to talk about. And he He does it immediately by pointing to two things. And this is what we're going to get into today. Both the humanity of Jesus as well as the divinity of Jesus and why those things matter to us. 
So let's do something a little bit different this morning. Would you stand with me as we read, if you're able to, First John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then after we're done reading, we'll, we'll have a word of prayer together. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest. And we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship with the Father and with his son Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. God, our minds have been filled up with all kinds of things this week. Some good and some not so good. But this morning, Lord, we want to have our minds filled with the truth about Jesus. His humanity and what that means for us now. Also be filled with his divinity and what that means for us throughout eternity. Lord, I, I pray that you would be near to us as we study this morning. And Lord, if you need to whisper these truths to our hearts today, God, I pray that you would whisper them to us in gentleness and help us to hear them. Lord, but there may be some of us here who need you to shout this stuff to us, to get through to us this morning. So we can be sure that we hear it, Lord. I pray that you would be However you choose to do it, whatever we need, Lord, be gracious to us in getting our attention with it. Lord, we also pray that you would bless your word to our ears so that we might go out when we're finished here and be the kind of image bearers that we are called to be. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Thank you for joining with me in that. As we read through that, I want to ask a grammatical question. Did you notice what tense those first four verses were written in, specifically the first three? I know we've got some teachers probably hitting hit some English. There's a specific tense here that John uses, and it's really the, the plural, it's a, they're plural personal pronouns here. Twelve different times he uses words like we, our, us. Okay, there's a point to that. There's a point to the grammar here. This is important because John is just main, making crystal clear that multiple people, lots of people, have claimed and testified to the things that he's saying right here. Right? So John is saying the word which was made manifest to us, we have felt and touched and seen and heard him. And not just me, he's saying, not just my personal testimony, ours. So he's kind of speaking for a lot of eyewitnesses at this point. Twelve different times in just these first four verses, he uses this kind of language. It's not just John who's seen and heard and touched that which was from the beginning, the word of life. John's account of this word of life here is not, is not like the, the word that, he, that is based off of in Revelation. Right? In Revelation, it's this heavenly vision God is giving to him. Here, it's... Someone very specific. It's a person. It's verifiable. It's provable. Historical facts that what John is writing in right here. These things can be shown as true. And he wrote 
all of these things to combat different groups of people who believed false things about Jesus. Okay? Some groups of people that believed wrongly about who Christ was. Some people believed that Jesus was God, but he was not man. So he was just this phantom or this spirit. He wasn't physical. But then there was other people that believed that Jesus was human, but he wasn't really God. You know, he was just a nice teacher and he taught moral things, that sort of thing. Both of these views actually come kind of twisted out of this group called the Gnostics. Jason mentioned this last week. And this group strongly denied the incarnation of Jesus. Now, kids, I'm going to ask you this question this morning because I think you've talked about this with Pastor Jason sometime recently. What is the incarnation? What does incarnation mean? mean brave soul? Want to tackle that one? It's not a trick question. Emery? No? Caden? Want to give it a shot? Incarnation? I'll help you out. Think Christmas. Does that help? The incarnation is when God became man, took on flesh. And based on our study last week of the authorship of this book, we believe that the same John who wrote this letter also wrote the Gospel of John, right? And so I want to just go together there to the beginning of the Gospel of John and just look at a few verses together. So flip, if you would, to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Follow along as I read this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Let's stop there. I would imagine and I'd hope that as we read through that, you kind of heard some similarities between the beginning of 1 John and the beginning of the, the Gospel of John. This is, adds to the evidence of why we think the same guy right, both, wrote both of these things. But let me point out some of these, these similarities together. So just whether you're in 1 John or the book of John, you can see, probably see these. 
He talks about right off the bat from the beginning. The beginning is important to John. He also talks about the word of life. He talks about light that shines in the darkness. We haven't quite gotten there in the book of First John, but it's coming soon. He also talks about the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. In First John, he says it this way. He says that we've heard and we've seen and we've touched him. See the similarities here? The word of life, the light and the darkness, the word made flesh. All of these phrases are pointing to something specific. And to even be even more specific, they're all pointing to someone. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ. That's who John is getting at here. Now, how many of you guys at home have a favorite blanket? Like it is... It, my daughter brought hers this morning, actually. Um, but maybe you've got one that you pull out like in the fall or the winter time, and you love it. You just curl up on the couch and you watch your Hallmark movie, and you know you just enjoy. It. And it's like the softest thing. It's like you know clouds. Um, I, if, if I if I stood up here and I said. I've got this blanket at home and it's got, you know, it's got reindeer printed on it and it's just got the most, it's beautiful feeling. You know, I can tell you and describe all of these things, but you still don't really understand what I'm talking about. How do you understand exactly what I mean when I say it's the softest blanket ever? I bring it and you touch it, right? Uh, Emery and I found a group of guys on YouTube a couple of years ago, um, Dude Perfect. I don't know if you guys have heard of them. They do trick shots. They're very entertaining. They're actually really family friendly. I think some of them are actually Christians, but uh, they do. They have a TV show. Whatever. Okay. Um, you can find their stuff on YouTube. It's really interesting. But they're like they're bending arrows around things to shoot targets. They're shooting arrows through swinging hoops. Uh, just incredible stuff. They're throwing basketballs over buildings from a swimming pool into a hoop. And it's just really interesting. And I can explain to you all of what they do, but it doesn't really take effect. You don't, you're not really amazed until you see it for yourself, right? How many of you guys have ever heard the sound that a fox makes? And I don't mean that goofy song, what does the fox say from years ago. I don't know how that ever happened. No, I cannot. The, a, a literal fox makes sounds that I don't think any person can emulate. Uh, they, they make ridiculously weird and unusual. Like Looking at the animal, you would not think that sound comes out of that animal. Just go home. Not the what does the fox say song, but look up actual fox song sounds. I, I can explain. I could even try to do it, which I won't. But it's not going to make any difference in your life. Not that it would when you go home and listen to it, but when you go home and listen, then you'll know exactly what it sounds like because you've heard it with your own ears. Okay, this is what I think John is trying to help us out with in First John. Because we can hear about things and we can listen to things. We can even kind of look at things, but until you see until you touch with your own hands and hear with your own ears, you don't really have a great understanding of it. 
It's an, it's an altogether different experience to do those things for yourself, to feel that soft blanket, to, to watch those crazy trick shots, to hear the sounds that a fox makes. John says the word appeared as a person who could be all of these things, who could be touched and seen and heard. And some people lived with him for years, three years. John was assuring everyone that they could experience Jesus for themselves. He's saying, we could do this and so can you. Jesus was not only a spirit and he was not merely a man. He is Emmanuel. Remember what Emmanuel means, God with us. Look at verse 1 of 1 John. It says that he was from the beginning. And verse 2 says, the eternal life which was with the Father. There has never been a time that Jesus has not been. There's never been a time that Jesus has not been. The next couple of verses confirm this. It says that he, the word, well, I'm sorry, this is from the, the gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. They confirm this. It says that he, the word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus has always been with the Father. This is enough, I think, to convince us right here and now. But that's not even the most incredible thing that's contained in these verses. That is incredible. We get kind of stuck sometimes thinking around Christmas time, well, you know, Jesus came as a baby and, you know, he lived his life. And we think that his life and existence started in a manger. It didn't. He was with the Father from eternity past. But that simple fact alone is not what's the most astounding thing from this text. The most incredible thing here is that he came at Bethlehem. The one who was from the beginning, as Philippians 2 tells us, this guy came. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. The eternal Son of God humbled Himself in order to serve those whom He created. That is the most incredible thing from this text so far. How in the world can our minds be wrapped around this glorious truth? Well, I think part of how we can do that is by singing songs like we did this morning. The song, Extravagant Love, reminds you of a couple of the lyrics the very beginning, it says, you were seated high above the heavens, but left it all to be lower than the angels, and then be judged by those you had created, the wonder of it all. I pray and hope that the beauty of the incarnation is not lost on us, and that it amazes us 20 years from now as much as it does today, and I would hope maybe even more so. But truthfully, I think it's impossible I think it's an impossible truth to come to grips with outside of the Spirit of God. John Piper explains the incarnation as a scandal or a stumbling block. I want to read what he has written about this. I think it's really helpful for us. He says this, Many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a merely spiritual reality. But when we preach that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, 
issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. I don't think it's so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation. The stumbling block is that if this doctrine is true, every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. This is the stumbling block of the incarnation. When God becomes man, he strips away every pretense of man to become God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things. And this man becomes the measure of all things. This is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. We need the Spirit of God to awaken a need for God in us. Praise the Lord, He still does that. But do you see why the doctrine of the Incarnation is so important? Do you understand better why the truth of this doctrine should be defended and cherished? I hope so. Because if Christ is not truly God in the flesh, then that sets off dominoes that end with us being hopeless. If Christ is not truly God in the flesh, then he did not live a sinless life. He could not have atoned for the sin of all who believe on the cross. He could not have been raised from the dead. And as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ did not truly was not truly God in the flesh, and if he did not raise from the dead, then we, of all people, are most to be pitied. That eternal word who was from the beginning, John says in verse 2 of 1 John, has been made manifest. You guys know what made manifest means? Kids, do you know what manifest means? It means to make public, to make known, okay? So, John says that Jesus, the eternal word from the beginning, was now made known to the world, was made manifest. He was seen publicly, heard publicly, could be touched John is going to great lengths, I think, here to convince us that Jesus is truly God, but also that Jesus is truly man here. Jesus is a real historical person who was really born in Bethlehem, who really walked this earth without sin, died in the place of sinners, rose from the grave, and now really is our advocate before God in heaven. We'll talk more about the advocate in verse two, in chapter two. But this is what John is so excited to exclaim and proclaim to his readers. Look at verse three, first John one, verse three. All these things were made through him and without him was not any, I'm sorry, I'm still in first, I'm still in the gospel of John. That's going to be confusing. That which, verse three, first John three, one three, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. He wants them to know about it. He was so excited for them to understand these things. I, I, I hope that we can feel John's passion and his excitement as he's writing this here. This is an open letter to the churches, remind you. Okay, so church, different churches in different areas, all kind of around Ephesus and in that region, they're reading these things. Many of them probably saw Jesus alive, just like he did. But those who didn't, those who were made disciples after Jesus went back, are hearing these things. And I'm, I'm going to imagine that they're taking great joy 
from this. They're finding immense hope in what John is saying here. This is not just some stuffy doctrinal discourse that John is getting into here about the divinity of Christ or the humanity of Jesus. This is a full-blown celebration of an unbelievable offer of unity and fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ his Son. This is something John is really excited to talk to people about. He wants his readers to be clear about who Jesus is, not just have this head knowledge of him. They can experience them for themselves. And I think John wants us to experience Jesus for ourselves just like he has. This is the very thing John says here that would make his joy complete. For sinners to be welcomed into the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the church. The only way for your joy to be complete in this life is through the word of life. Let me say that again. Let it sink in a minute. The only way for your joy to be complete is through the word of life. You don't have to go to any extra effort to find people that are pursuing joy at all cost. You understand what I'm saying when I mean that? I mean, they're sacrificing their families for happiness, for the pursuit of happiness. They're sacrificing their, their health. They're sacrificing their wealth to just find some joy in this life. To just capture even just moments of it. Just sometimes split seconds of it. Despite all of the effort of mankind over all of these years, there's no formula that brings total joy. There's no magic button that you can press when you reach a certain age. All the money, influence, sex, thrills, power, these things can never bring about real full joy in a person's life because they were never intended to. But in our fallen state, we have taken these things and we've twisted them to make them an end when they're not. Only the love of the Father through a relationship with His Son can bring you real joy. And it does. It does that very thing. Knowing and experiencing Jesus for yourselves brings complete joy. This is why I think... I would propose to you this morning that as Christians, you don't have to be afraid of what's happening in the world today. You, in Christ, you don't have anything to fear. Your joy is complete no matter who gets elected, no matter what sickness you might come down with. Your joy does not change because your joy is not found in those things. Your joy is found in a person. A person who is not affected by any of the things going on in our culture and in our world or even in your life right now. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is faithful even when we are not faithful. Brothers and sisters, hear that and be encouraged by it this morning. Your joy does not rest on anything else but on the person of Christ. If your joy is anchored to your feelings of happiness or your bank account or your health or anything else, it's, it's on shaky ground. If nothing else, 2020 has shown that to be true. 
This world is shaky ground, but real and complete joy is found in the nature and the work of Jesus Christ, of him. But there's more in this text that John has to say about joy. This shouldn't surprise us. It's found only through a relationship and fellowship with the Father and the Son. But look at what else he's saying here. Going back to the, the, the grammatical portion of what I pointed out at the beginning. The we, the us, the our. Joy is found through a relationship and through fellowship with God the Father and the Son. But it's also expressed or lived out in the fellowship of believers. Uh, one of the Inns girls, I noticed, has on this shirt that says, Better Together. I love that. That should describe us as the people of God. We are better together. Do you love your church? Does assembling together bring your heart joy? I hope that it does. Believe it or not, John writes about love for the brethren, love for fellow believers in every chapter of First John. At some point, this is one of those things that he goes back to in every chapter, love for the brethren. His thoughts on fellowship here, I think, revolve around the joy and unity that come with a group of people who have the same sort of thing in mind, a, a common pull together. Unity that comes from a group of people who have something really important something that really matters in common. Every person who has fellowship with God has had their life permanently changed and now the direction of their lives are all pointed at the same thing, the glory of God. That's what pulls us together in the church as God's people. And that's why it doesn't matter if everybody looks the same way as us or if everybody speaks the same language that we do or dresses the same, or lives in the same area. None of that stuff matters. What matters is all of our lives have been changed by the gospel and are now pointed at the glory of God. And Revelation tells us that there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, nation that are right there along with us doing that. This was the expressed purpose of the life and ministry of Jesus, the glory of the Father. So if we share... If each one of us shares in his life purpose as following Christ we ought to, then our reason for living rightly and our reason for assembling together as a church will also revolve around the same pursuit of the glory of God. At the moment of salvation, we have a relationship and fellowship with God. But we also have fellowship with other believers in the church. We cannot and should not ignore or downplay that reality. The body of Christ is the church, right? The bride of Christ is the church. And who is the church made up of? Believers. Christians. So Christ completes joy, and because his body is made up of, comprised of believers, we need to be in fellowship with them in order to experience and express that joy properly. If you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and you've had your sins forgiven by the Father as a result of that, then you have also been eternally joined to other believers in the church. Eternally joined. You got Jesus 
the moment of salvation. But you know what else you got? You got us. You got one another. You got other Christians in the deal too. And look, I get it. Churches can be really tough places to be sometimes. Okay? There can be hypocrisy. There can be pettiness. There can be selfishness. And just like a family, there are challenges and difficulties and hurt feelings even in the church. We would be silly to deny that that's true. You, unfortunately, may have observed or experienced being hurt in the church even at some point in your own life. We don't want to deny those things, but we also don't want to excuse them away either. If Christ died for his bride, and he did, and you are part of her, if you're saved, you are a part of her, then Christ's death should not only inform how we treat each other, but it should regulate how we treat each other. That means it doesn't just affect us, oh, I know I should act this way towards them, even though they've got under my skin about this. I should do that. It goes beyond that. Just not just informing how we should treat one another, but regulating. It controls how we treat one another. That person may have gotten under my skin, but I'm compelled by the Word of God to treat them a certain way regardless. And that's where sometimes things break down in the, in the body of Christ. To be sure, we are a work in progress, not just as individuals, but as a church. But we should always be progressing in our Christ-likeness, in our adherence to biblical authority. This time apart from one another uh, during the pandemic, and even now we're still kind of spaced out, and things just aren't normal. I don't know when normal will be here again, if it ever will be. But this is different, right? This is strange. We're kind of apart, and it's changed our routines. Sometimes the routine is good. Sometimes the routine is not good that it's been changed. You know, for some of us, I fear that kind of our flesh sort of loves, like, sleeping in on Sunday mornings, you know, not having to worry about too much going on. We just kind of slide on in, and and we kind of do our own thing. Um, We don't have to be burdened about the tougher schedule anymore. But I think for others, this time apart has actually deepened our love for for the body because our hearts ache for what we don't have right now, for that time together, for that fellowship together. In fact, I've talked with several of you who've said that very thing. This has shown me why we really need the church, what I'm lacking. And you could all probably identify areas of your life where whether it's Bible study time or accountability in something, it's slipped a little bit because we haven't met together. You haven't been able to connect with your brothers and sisters as you normally would. That's a challenge that we need to overcome. But this is, I think the the term or the phrase that's been around for a long time is that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I think that should be true in the church too. The absence that we've had should make our hearts beat stronger for love with one another. I hope that it does. I mean, if you want to, you can find a flaw in every church in existence, can't you? Either in their leadership or in their membership. If you're looking hard enough, you will find something. In fact, you might not even have to look all that hard at all. If you're looking for a person to blame for your problems or blame for not going to church so you can avoid gathering with the church, then you'll find that person to blame. You'll find it. But John 
doesn't let us off the hook with that. He's going to go on to say that if someone claims that they love Jesus, but that same person refuses to assemble with a local church, with the church body, then that person actually does not love God at all. And I would add on to that, that that actually reveals more about that person than it does about the church, doesn't it? You think God that knew, knew that the church would struggle this way? Absolutely. Of course he did. But you know what else is true? God never mentions a plan B. There's no fail-safe in the plan. This is it. The church is it. He doesn't qualify it and say, you know what, if the church in your area, you know, there's a hypocrite in that church, well, then you don't have to go. He doesn't say, well, if, that, if the church close to you doesn't, doesn't play the music that you like, you don't have to go. He never says stuff like that at all. No matter her momentary weaknesses or wrinkles or spots, being with the church and being the church is God's mysterious and yet beautiful design for the world to behold his wisdom. This is what Ephesians tells us. The church is that. And as the church, we joyfully and faithfully open our arms in fellowship to every person who looks to the Son and believes. In church, God is glorified in our unity of fellowship. I believe that wholeheartedly. But I'm not talking about fake unity. I'm not talking about togetherness that comes just because we all like the same music or the same style of preaching or anything like that. God is glorified in the unity that comes from brothers and sisters who give up their rights to serve one another. Let me say it a different way. Unity that comes from brothers and sisters willing to sacrifice their personal preferences in order to love and serve another. That's the kind of unity that God's talking about. If we only love people who love us or we get along with, Jesus really says it's of no benefit to us. He says, even pagans do that. Even pagans love people that love them. In Luke chapter 6, he says the real test of brotherly love is if we love those whom we are at odds with. We don't see eye to eye with. That's really where the love of Christ will come out or not. Is this the kind of love that you have for your fellow church members? Is this the kind of unity that we expect when we walk into a members meeting here? Or are we walking in with our fists up, ready for a fight? May God deliver us from division in the body, but may he also deliver us from false fellowship. We don't want to be the, the group at Ramsey Creek who get along because we all like the same things. We want to be the group that gets along even when we're mad at each other, even when we don't see eye to eye. God is glorified when we find our joy in Him together. Let me close with some words from commentator Daniel Aiken. He says, John wrote this letter so that our joy may be complete. Not partial, but complete. Full. All we could ever want or need. John is echoing the words he heard 
from Jesus. I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. He says that in John 15. We have a fullness of joy in our shared life with Jesus. That fullness of joy is ours through our friendship with one another and our friendship with God who is now our Father and all of it made possible by the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Guys, Jesus really came in the flesh and walked this earth. He really took the condemnation of every person who believes and gives them eternal life. He really unites the church together in fellowship with one another and with the Father. And He really gives unspeakable joy. These things are real. You can experience them for yourselves because you can't find this kind of joy, fulfillment, peace anywhere else. You can only find it by confessing your sins to the Father by repenting of those sins and following after Jesus, and then by being permanently united with the family of God. I hope that you have this kind of joy today, complete joy that comes through Christ and through the fellowship of believers in the church. If this is not the kind of joy that you're experiencing, I'd love to sit down and talk with you more about why and share some truth from God's word, encourage you. Please come and talk with me afterwards or get a hold of me this week. John is writing so that his joy may be complete and that your joy may be complete in Christ. Brothers and sisters, he's the only one where we can really find lasting, solid joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving us hope. It may not be our constant, Lord, but every one of us at times uh, anchors our hope to something of this life that is failing, faltering, that is wishy-washy, that changes, that is currently crumbling even. We all kind of hitch our wagon to things thinking that they're going to make us happy and bring us real joy only to find that they just let us down again and again. But in Christ, you've given us an anchor for our souls. In the midst of anything else going on, and there's lots of things to point to right now, but regardless of all of those things, Lord, you are the solid ground on which we stand, the solid rock in which we trust and build our lives off of. And not just as individuals, Lord, in fellowship and relationship with the Father, Lord, but as the church, Help us, strengthen us for this task. We don't want to be Christians on islands, Lord. We want to be the lighthouse pointing the way, pointing out the dangers so that many might find their way to the safe harbor of Jesus. Lord, we know because of our own failings, because of our own hearts, that we cannot do this on our own. We also know that the church overall is is struggling at times. But we also are assured, Lord, that the remnant will not fail, that you have not left your people, 
that you still believe the church. There's no plan B. You still believe the church is the way to communicate your wisdom to the world and to the spiritual realm. And so, Lord, we don't give up. We know we've got our, our wrinkles and our spots, God, but, but Jesus is making us new. And I pray as a church body that he is making us new in our fellowship and in our mission to take what you have given us by grace and to go in peace to share, to reach out in the Great Commission. Lord, I pray that we would be actively making disciples of all nations. Lord, if we are not, if that's not a passion of ours, if that's not even a thought in our minds of discipling someone, Lord, I pray that you would start that wheel turning so that we might all participate in what we are pointed at together, the glory of the Father. We thank you for this day. May we go living out what we say we believe. May our faith not be useless or false. May our works this week prove our love for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.